So welcome to another episode of Simulcast. As our listeners know, this episode is one of our joint collaborative episodes with Advances in Simulation, a healthcare simulation journal. And I'm very pleased today to be joined not by one, not by two, but by three guests. Our first is Ryan Bridges, who is a professor in technology-enabled learning at St. Michael's Hospital, University of Toronto in Canada. And he is, in fact, the author of the editorial that we're going to be reviewing today. How are you, Ryan? I'm very well. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. And as I said, Ryan is one of the senior editors at Advances, so he's going to be part of our collaboration over the next six months with the journal. I'm also joined by two other folks who are going to serve as our discussants for this paper today. And the first of those is a friend of mine, Mary Fay, who works over at the Center for Medical Simulation in Boston, where she's involved in faculty development, and in particular, a new course called Gateway to Debriefing with Good Judgment. And she comes here as a discussant with a both nursing and academic background uh, in simulation and clinically, of course, and she's got a PhD from the University of Maryland. How are you, Mary? I'm doing great, Vic. Thanks for having me. Excellent. And with her, and in fact, they're both up there in Boston at CMS at the moment, is uh, Susie Cardong Edgren, who is the professor and director of the RISE Center at the School of Nursing and Health Sciences at Robert Morris University. And many people would know Susie from her work in simulation, and she's been a previous keynote speaker at SimHealth in Australia as well. And she's here today because she's one of the authors of the paper that Ryan's editorial is all about. So welcome, Susie. Thank you. All right, so we're going to hop into this and just to give people a little bit of an idea about what we're doing. This article is an editorial that Ryan wrote in Advances in Simulation last year. From Simulation Research to Education Policy, How Much Evidence is Enough? And it really addresses a key issue. What level of evidence do we need for translation of research, in this particular case in simulation, to policy and actually implementing change? And he looks at the specific example of some recent changes to nursing training in the US as a result of a very large simulation study. So Ryan, I might just kick off with you. Why did you write this editorial and what were you hoping to achieve? Yeah, so the reason to write it was I was actually at a conference, a conference called Simulation Summit in Canada in Banff, which was a beautiful setting. And while there I saw Pamela Jeffries give a talk summarizing this study as well as a number of other related studies and consensus groups she had been at and if i'm honest i had a pretty strong reaction to it i thought wow there's a lot of change happening after just one study and so i really wondered why and i parked it and kind of just left that uh, to, to simmer for a little while and then i started to get involved with advances in simulation and deborah nestel the editor-in-chief said hey would you like to write an editorial and i thought this would be a perfect topic for an editorial. And so I did a history ch check. I looked into the literature to see what the setting was for the study, what happened immediately preceding, as far as I could tell from the literature, what happened afterward, and put things together in the editorial, as, as the readers will find. And also, to be honest, it was my first editorial ever in my life. So I thought I'd started out with something pretty provocative. I see that happen in a lot of other fields, but I found that in simulation education research, I hadn't read or encountered anything too provocative prior. And so I thought, why not push on this pressure point and see what kind of discussion comes out of it? 
Well, I admire your bravery, Ryan. Uh, always good to get into something contentious, but I think the other thing I heard in what you said is you, like most of us, pretty much do whatever Deborah Nestel says is a good idea. Yeah, yeah, she typically has great ideas, so why not <laughs> fall in line? All right, and we might come back to that point because I think it's very interesting, your perception that we don't have a lot of uh, provocative discussion, but this might be a good point to actually get a little bit more background on the study we're talking about because as you indicate it's a very big study it's had a very big impact and we're extremely lucky today to have Susie here with us who's one of the authors of the study so for our uh, listeners we'll also put the link on the blog post for this so this um, is a study from the National Council of State Boards of Nursing National Simulation Study and uh, Susie's one of the authors there as I said and I might ask Susie did you want to sort of take us through the background to the study and again it's going to be hard to summarize because it's in fact very detailed but just to give us a little sense of what you did and what you found. Surely and the context for the study was in about 2009 uh, Simulation had been going strong in nursing, picking up speed since about the year 2000. So there were more and more people using simulation because there were fewer and fewer clinical sites. Uh, there were more and more uh, for-profit schools that were beginning to not only pay for clinical sites, which was sucking some of the oxygen out of the uh, areas for many of us, but also putting more and more students into schools by using simulation. Yet there were only a lot of small studies about the best practices in this. And really we didn't have any large scale studies to say that, that this, this was a good idea, yes or no. Um, one of the realities for nursing educational research in the United States is that the federal government will not fund purely nursing educational research. The largest grants that are possible for purely nursing education are about, I want to say, $50,000 mm -hmm. from the NLN or from a couple other organizations. But again, those are mostly private, nonprofit type organizations. So uh, the National Council is the meeting place for all the state boards of nursing. And they were being pressured by their own states and schools within the states to come up with some guidelines for the use of simulation because some schools wanted to use all simulation, no necessary, uh, no, not necessarily any clinical at all. And they were feeling uh, pressured uh, and people were just running willy nilly, uh, buying a bunch of mannequins and saying, okay, this is what we're gonna do. And people weren't necessarily becoming educated in how to use these using whatever best practices were available at the time. So that is the context for them finally uh, cold calling, basically, uh, Pam Jeffries and myself to say, please come and help us write a study to provide some evidence for the use of simulation that is robust. So uh, although it might look like only one study, that's really not what happened. And a lot of social forces were happening to get this to occur. Okay, so it might be just worth pausing there. So because I guess this comes up when you're talking about the study which didn't find any difference. But what you're saying is that the way people were doing things had a lot of problems, particularly in terms of availability of placements and in terms of uh, the rigor or otherwise of the alternative. So you're both seeking to find, was there a better alternative? And I use the word better very broadly 
uh, to having the traditional approach? And if you were going to have a different approach, what would be the appropriate standards to have? That would be correct. All right. So uh, what did you do? So we met and uh, basically took the first year to come up with what was the state of the science and simulation at that time. A national survey was sent out to the 1,651 nursing schools in the United States and Puerto Rico, any place that uh, belongs to the National Council of State Boards of Nursing to get a lay of the land, what was being done. And during that same time, we were beginning to plan the study and what it would look like. Our person at the National Council, who was our planner person really, was uh, putting together the application for schools of nursing around the United States to be able to apply to be in the study. And we knew that we needed certain things. We needed schools that had enough bandwidth to run simulations up to 50% in uh, major clinical courses, especially if they had two going at the same time, at the same time being able to run 25% and then 10%. So that was going to limit the number of schools. In addition, schools had to not be on probation by the National Council. They could not have had any major recent curricular changes. We also wanted a mix of ADN programs, which are considered two-year programs and four-year programs in nursing. So her job was to do all the groundwork for all these kinds of things. So two things happening at the same time, finding the schools, writing the study, and finding out the lay of the land. Okay, so I might just pause there. So just to really oversimplify perhaps the method you ended up going to a variety of nursing schools you've got a total of 666 students that you've uh, across 10 programs and there's three groups of them one of them do 10 percent of their clinical hours in sim one of them does 25 percent of their hours in sim and one of them does 50 percent of their hours in sim and uh, you're then going to measure a bunch of outcome measures to sort of see how that works for them correct the total that ended up completing the study was 666. We actually had 857 people in the study at all these 10 schools, and we had oversampled and made sure we had plenty of people in case we had dropouts so that we would end up with enough um, participants to be able to have statistical significance. The students that finished, completed the study were then followed, were given the opportunity to be followed into the clinical environment for the first six months as they started their practice. Okay, so to sort of cut to the chase of the study, what says at the end is that you think that there was no difference in outcomes between those three groups. And then just tell us, because it is particularly important, what did you use as measures? Because that's the every man, every woman simulator wants to know. Yeah, but how do you know that they're equivalent? All kinds of things. We controlled for method of debriefing. All debriefers were the same debriefers throughout the entire study. They were all trained in one method. They ran all the scenarios. Content experts were with them when it was content that they were not familiar with. Um, and we used a tool, the CCEI tool. It was a tool that was available at the time. I would not say there was anything particularly special about that tool. It was one that was freely available. We had permission to use it. And it was one of many other measures also. We also had clinical instructors using proprietary instruments that looked at critical thinking and some other variables, quite a number of different tools that are listed in the study. And some of those same tools are then, again, uh, looking at critical thinking and things like that were used in the follow-on six months after people graduated from school. We also used the NCLEX. 
I'm going to say uh, the NCLEX is the entry into professional practice in the United States. It is a paper and pencil tool. Many of us don't believe that uh, the NCLEX necessarily measures ability to practice, get your body to move through space and do what you're supposed to do. But it is how you get licensed. And so we use that as one of our measures also. Okay, so this has pretty good, I guess, face validity for people looking at it. You've got a measure that's multifaceted, one of which is an exam, basically, one of which is the judgment of experts who will be supervising these students and others uh, seem to have more granular outcomes. All right, so this is a pretty big study, obviously a lot of professional investment in looking at it. Mary, I might ask you now, uh, what was the talk around the sort of nursing and simulation world as this study was going on? Did you want to give us a little sense of a sort of professional perspective on it? Um, sure. So at the time that, that the study was being conducted, I was the director of the uh, simulation lab at the University of Maryland. As Susie said, since another landmark study, uh, the Laredal NLN study in, in 2003, nursing schools had been adopting simulation. And so we were all already doing, for some of us, a pretty significant amount of simulation in the nursing program. And because of the pressures of the difficulty of finding clinical sites, restrictions on student nurse practice. So many times in their clinical placements, although they're in the hospital working with patients, there are restrictions on what they can do with regard to medication administration, for example. Or certainly if their patients get unstable, they're not able to care for their patients. And so simulation provided those of us in nursing education an opportunity, a great opportunity to give our learners the targeted experiences that we felt they needed to have to move them along the trajectory to competent practice. And so we were all using it, and yet we all knew we were using it in a way that was, that was unregulated. And so I would say on the whole, nursing faculty in the U.S. were really excited as the study was going on and, and anxiously waiting for the results. Very interesting. And I think that's probably a scale that we haven't really seen in terms of the connection between the professional community and the simulation research community. So very impressive. Well, Ryan, speaking of brave, taking on the uh, nursing full simulation group in the United States, that is, that is pretty brave. So uh, I know this isn't necessarily a critique of Susie's article, but of course it's relevant because I think your point is how much do we need to change practice? And without getting, as you describe it, too much into the weeds of the specifics of this study, talk us through now knowing that context where you see the sort of pluses and minuses of an impact of a study like this. Yeah, thank you. And, you know, it's a great opportunity to hear more about that context, because, again, as I said, I, I gleaned what I could from the published literature, from conference proceedings. And so those personal stories and understanding the political and social climate of the time certainly helps uh, situate the findings even more. Uh, and I think I should say full disclosure. I'm clearly a researcher. Uh, I'm just learning what it means to be an administrator and how to respond to these kinds of pressures uh, in, in my own work. And so I certainly appreciate that those are quite different from sometimes where, where we do reside as researchers in the weeds. And so some of the points that we identified, because I did discuss this with some colleagues, uh, first and foremost is the broad design I think they used a superiority design, and, and these are typically used when you expect one group to outperform the other, but really they're seeking equivalence. And 
equivalence designs actually come with bring with them different rules for sampling of your participants and also for how to interpret the group differences that you do observe in your in those groups once you've run the study. While that may not have had a huge impact on the interpretations that came out of this work because it was so large and very powered with the number of uh, people involved, I do think that this is a lesson for future studies that if this is going to continue to be something that, that needs to be, or that is replicated, and I think it should be, then equivalence designs and, and all of the rules inherent in those are, are key for us to replicate these effects and show that, for, for example, it may extend beyond nursing or to other parts of nursing. Uh, I think that's really a, one key point. Uh, just before you leave that point, uh, mm -hmm. because obviously we're all on learning curves with our simulation and research in general, have you got uh, a sort of three-second version of the difference between a superiority study, which uh, Susie's mm -hmm. study was, versus a non-superiority or equivalent study? Yeah, uh, so basically the rule changes in that with the equivalence designs, you actually look to the literature to see what a typical effect is or a, a typical difference uh, in studies using the outcomes that you've prioritized. So first you have to choose a, a primary outcome, look to the literature, and then you make a decision on what the discernible difference, uh, I don't know that that's a, the exact term, but, but a meaningful difference will be on that outcome. From that meaningful difference, you, this drives all of the decisions you make about sampling and so on. Whereas in, in superiority design, you don't have to identify that meaningful difference ahead of time. You still use previous data if you can, but the rules change slightly. And uh, it, it does, it can have quite a big impact on the overall sample size that you're forced to include based on the statistical uh, operations that you employ in making that decision. And just for our listeners who are clinicians as well, this is just as applicable for uh, clinical studies as it is for educational ones. Absolutely. All right, so there's a, you know, issue there or one of the things that you wanted to raise was that and uh, other things? Yeah, so another one was in looking at the impacts of educational policy change, there are some studies showing that such large-scale changes are typically not associated with major changes in knowledge exams. And so uh, Susie made a great point that their knowledge exams are not the only uh, outcome that they measured, and, and it sounds like not the one that they necessarily prioritized. But including that, uh, and really it's, it's high-profile outcome, uh, I think is, is problematic given this evidence that, that there's typically no association between the two. And while there were other outcomes measured, those have evidence issues as well, which I can get into uh, with my next point. But still on this idea of policy change, uh, I also looked around just to get a sense of how policy has changed in other spheres like clinical medicine uh, or, or clinical care in general. And I found that a single study hardly ever leads to such change except in the rare case where it tips the balance of evidence. And I just don't think we were at that tipping point. But again, hearing the, the surrounding context, it sounds like there are other factors that were potentially leading to that tipping point. So I certainly take that into consideration now. It's interesting, I think, that correlation with clinical research, because I would say I think I've certainly seen some cases where 
a study or two, and the example of thrombolysis in stroke might be familiar to some of our listeners, where there's some contention about the level of evidence that's led to policy change. And one of the things that's raised, and it was raised in that example in particular, is conflict of interest. And this is kind of interesting, isn't it? Because as you say, you hear this lovely background from from Mary and from Susie, and yet in some ways they're quite conflicted, even though they're not getting necessarily a financial advantage out of having a drug. But I would be interested in, in a comment on that because this great investment in the issue might also mean that people were very invested in a particular outcome. And I'd be interested, Susie or Mary, if you wanted to sort of speak to that. That's a hot button item. I will tell you that the best outcome for the time politically occurred, and that was that there was no difference between those in the 50% group uh, and they were no worse or better than anybody else. That was politically very, very much the best at the time uh, because people, there were so many people in nursing uh, very vested against simulation. And I have to say very freely that that's still the case in many cases, although not as common. Having said that, I think if you ran the study again today, if you could use schools that were doing 50% sim or, or were had skilled debriefers, and I could honestly say, I believe that if we'd been able to do it at the time and have those elements in place, the uh, 50% uh, group would have blown everybody out of the water. And that has always been my uh, personal opinion. And I'm a researcher, so I can, I very much always label my personal opinion as such. So I have to agree on, with Ryan on many uh, counts. We had no control over what the outcomes were going to be. We can make some suggestions. There was a doctorally prepared statistics person on the study with us. And uh, he had control over what those would be. Yeah, and I think what you describe, in fact, going into that methodology, the cohesion amongst the nursing profession must have been fairly significant to get the support at those places that really weren't doing it. And it allowed you to have a comparison group that, as you said, would actually be quite hard now given the penetration of the simulation. I suppose the other thing, and going back to this clinical uh, and educational change topic, we do also see a lot of educational policy change with no research background. And so while we're sort of saying, would you change on the basis of a single study, we've also been victims, I'm sure, of having educational change thrust upon us where we really can't understand the logic at all. So I guess we're kind of in the middle ground here. Just before we leave the study, Susie, I'd be interested, how do you think we would have gone if we'd had other arms that might have included 50% of doing nothing like private study at home or 50% doing simulation that did not have the level of quality that you have so eloquently described in terms of the standards that have emerged from that? Um, I personally would love to see it, but it's unethical. <laughs> you would have to do what's called a... Uh, yeah, a crossover, a crossover yeah, design. Yeah, just like, yeah, I'd love to do it, but uh, I don't think I'm going to get funded for that. <laughs> yeah, the reason I ask is I think it goes back to this point, uh, particularly around using the exam as an outcome measure and all the work that's been done in Maastricht and elsewhere on progress testing is that the biggest predictor of the outcomes like that are where people come into, mm -hmm. i.e. what's their performance at baseline. And so sometimes I think we kid ourselves about the impact of any educational intervention. Take us a little further then, Ryan. Uh, where do you would you like to see this going in terms of this uh, discussion about what we need as a level of evidence for policy change, because clearly this editorial was much bigger than Susie's study, although it provided a lovely 
exemplar for a broader discussion. Yeah, I have to thank them for the content and foundation. It was really helpful and, and really intriguing to see how it, it uh, unfolded in uh, what I was able to research. But really, the what I was aiming to do was to have simulation educators and researchers, and more broadly, researchers and educators in all of the health professions to be more critical about the evidence that they're seeing, number one, and its use in policy, number two. I appreciate that some change needs to be large in scale. We need to shift paradigms and uh, get unstuck from certain conditions. I, I totally understand that. Uh, but in SIM in particular, I've reviewed the evidence. I've been a part of a number of systematic reviews, and those have some limitations, but we saw a lot of the evidence for both training and assessment using this modality. And the quality was just not at a level where I'm comfortable seeing large scale policy change after any study. Uh, and so that's, that's really st the starting point. I'd like us all to say, what's the evidence say? What does it mean? And, and how do we interpret it within the, the social and political context, understanding that those are powerful variables as well? And as you're saying, this idea that we've had these kinds of changes thrust upon us, I've been fortunate to be a part of a project now here in Toronto where the Royal College of Physicians and Surgeons of Canada has impl implemented an explicit competency-based model. There's this focused on entrustment as well. Uh, it's called competency by design. And we've looked in the literature, I've been a part of what was called a discourse analysis, uh, fourth author on a five author paper, so I'm not a major contributor by any means. But what we found is that it's all really rhetoric right now. Uh, people are pushing agendas and citing others who think the same way as them, uh, rather than actually looking to the evidence. And we find that to be quite remarkable, and especially in what level of change has resulted from that rhetorical strategy. And so I do think that these changes based on mixed or diluted evidence are quite problematic, especially when they're at such a substantive level. And while I do think there's a right level, like we can't just wait for all of the evidence before we make change, I still think we do need to wait for some to make an informed change. And that's really something I'm seeking, the, this blend of bold innovation and, and change, not for change's sake, but because it's needed for a variety of purposes, and the sage use of evidence to do that uh, and to, to keep it informed. And so that's really what I want to see our fields across health professions engage in at the individual level, at the institutional level, and at the national and international level as well. Excellent. So uh, trying to divine the relative impacts of politics and evidence in change. Uh, Mary, Susie, thoughts? Um, so I just want to um, sort of build on what Ryan said about um, evidence and politics. And this is speaking from the perspective of an in the trenches nurse educator at the time. One of the other important things that was happening around this time was that the Carnegie Foundation for the Advancement of Teaching had commissioned groups to study educations of professions, including medicine, nursing, clergy, um, and law and engineering. And the group that was uh, commissioned to study nursing education published their findings and recommendations. And one of their strongest recommendations was that what nursing education was lacking was a mechanism to help nursing students apply the knowledge in context so that they could learn how to use their content knowledge. And they acknowledged that nursing education was very content heavy. And what we really needed was meaningful experiential learning. 
And I think that simulation provides us the way to do just that in a way that can't happen in clinical because of mostly concerns for patient safety. So I think that was another strong political force that was, was driving nursing schools to look for ways that they could create meaningful experiential learning. So that was another political aspect of, of what was going on at the time. And with regard to evidence, I, I just want us to consider, remember that there are many levels of evidence. We're, we value quantitative studies very much, but other levels of evidence that really I think have influenced me as an educator and other uh, nurse educators are evidence that exists from other fields that we borrow from like adult learning and experiential learning and cognitive psychology and social psychology. And so I think there's plenty of evidence that a well-constructed experiential learning activity is a positive way to teach learners. And I think that we can also look to evidence from existing high hazard and high reliability organizations like the nuclear energy field and aviation who rely heavily on simulation for their training and have safety records that are the envy of the healthcare system. And so to look at this um, and to judge the simulation study by saying, well, it didn't, it didn't really um, show a huge advantage. And so perhaps we should stick with our traditional methods of education education reminds me that our traditional system of education results in a healthcare system in the U.S. anyway um, that's responsible for the deaths of upwards of 100,000 patients per year. I do agree that we need much more research in healthcare simulation. I don't think that educators should have to wait until the evidence accumulates. I think we should both be moving forward together. Yeah, and I think that brings up, you know, where's the evidence for the status quo, which is often exists just as much in clinical research as others. Uh, again, just for listeners, a couple of little points there that we'll put up some detail about. The Carnegie Foundation, huge influence on education across many professions. Uh, we'll put a link up to that. Plus, Ryan also mentioned the systematic reviews that he's been involved with, many of which where David Cook is the first author looking at uh, meta-analyses and systematic reviews on a number of topics in simulation. So we'll put some links up to those as well. Uh, and Mary's point, the other one that I really wanted to draw out there, Mary, that I think is great is that this isn't in fact doing research causing policy change, but in fact, it's an interrelationship. And what you're saying is often the policy drives people to be pointing their research objectives uh, in a certain direction. And I think that's actually a good thing because it means that the researchers are connecting with the simulation community and answering those questions. And, and I couldn't agree more. We've got other fields of endeavor. It's not just uh, as this was a randomized control trial in education, but we've also got fields like quality improvement and others where there's different methodologies to look at those levels of evidence. Very rich discussion. All right, Ryan, what have you got to uh, contribute uh, as we start to draw our conversation to a close? Yeah, just one point on what what you've just said. The For me, the concern, and, and I, I, we would have to wait to see if this is borne out, is that when research leads to such policy change relatively rapidly that researchers in that field might regard that as, oh, it's done. Uh, it's led to the change. There's no need to look at this any more closely because the change has happened and here we are. And, and so I just worry a little bit that the change leads to a finality that we can move on from here and start to study other things now. And the any other field, psychology, in particular would say 
no way. We have to replicate, 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 extend, test, see how well these theories and, and these effects hold. And so that's just a, a small, rather, it's not really small, a potentially large caveat that uh, it could mislead researchers away from adding evidence to a, a question in a body of work rather than, uh, yeah, moving on. So I, I just want to be, be uh, signaling that as a point of worry, as a researcher, that that's something we need to be mindful of. Mm -hmm. Yes, no, thank you for that. And I think based on the discussion we've had for the last 30 minutes, I would say this is a really good argument for clinicians, researchers and educators to stay connected because we can make sure that we're doing the right work that's leading to the right change. All right, well, our time is nearly up, folks, but I do want to say a huge thank you because this has been an amazing discussion, some amazing work that's done both in simulation research and some very uh, impressive encouragement for us to critique these things, think on a broader scale about some of these bigger issues. Thank you very much, Mary and Susie there in Boston. You guys have a good rest of your CMS course. Thanks so much, Mary. Thank you. And thank you, Ryan. And we're looking forward to some more work with advances in simulation. And I'm sure you'll be part of some of our other episodes. But I'd like to thank you for your time today. Oh, and thank you for the invitation. And yeah, we're really excited about the partnership with the journal and looking forward to seeing where that takes us all. Well, Simulcast listeners, this has been the second of our podcasts in collaboration with Advances in Simulation and Open Access Journal. You can find the link to advances on our website, simulationpodcast.com, as well as the blog post accompanying this podcast, or you can go direct to advancesinsimulation.biomedcentral.com. We'll look forward to another author and discussant on another article from the journal in a couple of months' time.